Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our ongoing conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And a reminder, uh, these conversations have been going on for over seven years now, and you can access the archive both at uh, PRN. Uh, .org and my own technosis.com, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com, and that's where I have tons of my old writings as well. So uh, it's, uh, it's quite an archive now. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And, uh, and we go on. Um, I, uh, my life was uh, irrevocably transformed in July of 1983 when I went up to uh, Ventura County Fairgrounds went home in San Diego and saw the Grateful Dead for the first time. And uh, Ventura County Fairgrounds is a very special place to see the band uh, because it was right alongside of the water, the ocean. And basically, once you crossed into the parking lot, uh, there were no cops. Uh, so somehow they, they managed to kind of chisel out this place. Uh, and people were like, crashing not just in their cars and, and their the inevitable VW buses, but also in like the, the stables. People were sleeping on the beach. Uh, and it was an old uh, rodeo rink. So it was had, had bleachers on one side and then a dirt field. And what was most uh, great about it for me was not just introduce the introduction to the music and to the, the, the vibe and all the people and all the crazy characters that were still in uh, California in the early 1980s before the Grateful Dead kind of exploded in uh, 87 in the late 80s. Uh, so, it was, you know, it was a quite a great immersion in, uh, in California hippiedom. Um, but my favorite thing about the shows, the, the, the thing that really transformed me more than anything was that they had the soundstage in the middle of the rodeo field. So if you if you were behind, the, it was pretty big. So if you're behind the soundstage, you couldn't see the band. Um and so, you know, I just kind of stumbled in there uh, and discovered that that was where all the, the really serious dancers were hanging out because they didn't want to look at the stage and they didn't want to have everybody facing one direction. And so I just found myself bouncing around like this cosmic pinball uh, in this amazing collective dance scene. And I still remember the way a lot of these people looked. Uh, I remember the looks in their eyes when they'd look at me in my eyes and we'd be picking up moves from each other. I mean, it was really a, a, a deep immersion, very, very embodied immersion in the kind of full range of uh, the uh, unspoken communication with uh, other people, other beings, and of course, um, with this marvelous, bizarre, sometimes corny, sometimes janky um, music that the band was making and that remains a uh, you know significant part of my listening life and and has been continuously since since those early years. Um, but it was funny, even though I'm I'm also a, a scholar and a, a pop culture critic, and you know I, I like to read a lot of uh, critical theory, and I'm I'm kind of these guys. I never I didn't really know how deep uh, one of the many rabbit holes associated with the Grateful Dead goes, and this is the rabbit hole of Grateful Dead scholarship. So it's not just that, like, you know, any band that has some importance, there's some people out there who've written a book or some articles or whatever. No, no, no. It may be the case that the Grateful Dead is the most studied band of anything in the, in the rock and roll 
generation. I think maybe even more than Dylan, although, you know, it depends on what you mean by study. Because, of course, one of the things about being a Grateful Dead fan is that you were a Grateful Dead critic right from the ball game. You know, like that was one of the first things I learned. You like you could say, ah, that show sucked or I love that that Jack Straw was great or, you know, that Dark Star two weeks ago was better than any of this stuff or whatever. It's like it, it, it encouraged that kind of vibe. Uh, but it's really uh, uh, gotten quite installed inside uh, popular culture discourse, uh, uh, of course, musicology, uh, literature even. Um, and so uh, I decided to, to dip my toes in uh, with listening for the secret, the Grateful Dead and the politics of improvisation by Ulf Olsen, who's our guest today, who, who's a professor of comparative literature at Stockholm University in Sweden. And this book is the first, number one, of the Studies in the Grateful Dead series from the University of California Press, which is one of my favorite academic presses. They do a lot of stuff on magic and mysticism and interesting religion as well uh, as some good pop culture stuff and some good California stuff. Um, so it was a, it was quite a treat to read, uh, to have these sort of different worlds in my own brain come together. I never thought I would be reading about, uh, you know, Jerry Garcia and Adorno in, in one text. And uh, I, it was a delightful experience. And I'm happy that I managed to get uh, uh, to get Ulf to be on Expanding Mind. So with no further ado, Ulf, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you, Eric. It's it's nice to be here, and I get so envious of you. I wanted to be at that Ventura show too, but hmm, I wasn't. Yeah, well, I mean, that was one of the places just to start off. Is your is in your own personal life uh, growing up in Sweden? When did you come across the dead? What did they seem like to you? And and how did you get uh, drawn into the fold? Yeah, well, it's. The Dead and Sweden is a special story, of course, but my personal experience is that I started to listening to The Dead in the late 60s. We, I had a friend who was sort of well-off. He came from a well-off family, and he could buy any record he wanted. And he had those early albums, but we didn't understand them, really. But we were so fascinated by them, and we were looking at those covers, trying to sort of decipher them. Uh, but then with Live Dead, you know, the first... Uh, double live album that they issued in, in was it 70 um, and then of course Working Man's Dead and American Beauty that changed it so you sort of grew into it but and I really enjoyed the dead in the early 70s I tried to catch them live I hitchhiked through Europe in order to, to see them in France but I came a day or two too late so that was a bummer of course um then Bob Weir showed up in Stockholm in the early 80s. He was supposed to bring his own band at the time, Bobby and the Midnights, to, to Sweden and to Stockholm, but only him came. And I did an interview with him. So that was my start on writing about the Grateful Dead. I was already at that time a grad student in, in comparative literature, but improvised music and music is, of course, a big interest. And then the Grateful Dead actually did come to Sweden and to Stockholm in 1990. It's often looked upon as a mediocre show. They were jet lagged. They didn't get off, take off really. But it's okay. It it wasn't great. But I did also then an interview this time with Phil Lesh and it was really interesting. I sort of 
wrote uh, more essays on the dead in Swedish. And then I came to California these uh, last eight years, I think it is. And I find that there is a sort of living culture here still centered around the Grateful Dead or in connection in related to, to the band and its history. So that is my, my sort of history with the Grateful Dead. Well, and I'd also like to hear just before we get into your your book, and it, it's interesting that you're you're a comparative literature guy, but you you spent spend relatively small amount of time uh, discussing the lyrics, and you're much more going into the questions of, of improvisation, which is a theme on our show. Actually, I, uh, we we do music shows not not that often, but almost always they involve some question of of improvisation, which seems to me to be really one of the key. Uh, topics today on for for a number of reasons. So I, I actually appreciate the way in which you you didn't get uh, caught up in the in the lyrics uh, overly, and really were look uh, was looking more at social practices at uh, and and this question of politics, which is a fascinating one when you think about the dead. But before we get into those questions, I I would just want to I'd love to hear a little snapshot of how you see this kind of pretty healthy. You know, subgenre or niche within uh, scholarship, within academia, of people looking at the Grateful Dead. I mean, when did that really start rolling? When was there was is, was there kind of a central event, or uh, what makes that a particularly what, what what gives it its own character in terms of comparison with other uh, sorts of academic scenes that you're familiar with? That's uh, a good question. Um, the Great Fidel Scholarship is a sort of a loose community of scholars that are really supportive. And that makes it a little different, I think, from other scholarly communities that have sort of been in touch with, where competition might be more uh, to the fore. Um, but the Grateful Dead scholarship, of course, has its history. Musicologists have written about the band, of course. And there are important studies by people like David Malvini and, and Graham Bone and others. Uh, but they tend, of course, to be a little of the sort of technical side for us that are not into, into musicology. But I sort of happened to see that there was a conference on popular culture in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there was a Grateful Dead session. And I found out that it was, I think at the time, the 16th consecutive session on the band in that. So it has been going on for at least about 20 years now. Uh, and there is a Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus that sort of meets there. You don't get a formal membership, but it's easy to sort of become part of it. And as I said, it's a very supportive kind of, of atmosphere there. And people share really their uh, views on, on the band. And so, yes, there is already an existing uh, scholarship on the band. And I mean, I'm presently at the University of California in Berkeley, and it seems like every other professor here is an old deadhead. So it's sort of a widespread culture. And Theory, uh, cultural theory, critical theory has been applied to the ban in, in many different uh, essays throughout the years. So I'm not the first to do that, but I think this is the first sort of book of this kind that uses critical theory in order to take a more uh, whole, make a whole vision of the ban. Yeah, no, I, and I think I think you you you, pull, you pulled it off. It was really uh, really interesting and, and often quite uh, insightful and surprising 
um, particularly the, the the problem of, of of understanding a politics. What does it mean to talk about politics in relationship to a band that at least superficially was very anti-political? But I thought maybe a, a a better way to approach this conversation is to start off talking just about improvisation and improvisation in the Dead's music and how that was sort of re- reflected in in various social practices. And then maybe through that we can start to peel off some of the more explicit political questions that I definitely also have because I've been I've been very interested in kind of the the question of uh, what what a sort of California countercultural politics is really about which is a lot more complicated than I think uh, people um, often take it for and I think the dead are really representative of that but but in terms of improvisation what did you want to bring to the table since clearly people in the in the dead scholarship world have been talking about improvisation some more in musicological terms some more in kind of cultural or even spiritual terms what 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 about improvisation for you was uh, the sort of that why was that going to be the hook in terms of your engagement with the with the dead in this book? And uh, and then we can just start talking about some of the unique things about improvisation uh, in, in the band, because, of course, improvisation means means many things in many different contexts. Right. Um, and it's a, it's, as you suggest, a very complex uh, aspect of, of music in general and also of the Grateful Dead's music then. So but what I like about the Grateful Dead is precisely when they sort of go for the unknown, where you feel that they are exploring something. And it's not based on the actual tune so much. They can refer to it, but they can also leave it totally or could. And this is, I think, especially the first half of the 70s, they were fantastic at doing this. And the way that they could take the music to new places to to give it new meaning then. So that one can really wonder what improvisation is. I mean, they are not just a jam band. I think that people tend to look at improvisation as sort of, you just hum along and you jam a little and then it's improvised music, but it's really not so much that. I don't look at the Grateful Dead as a jam band exactly. They rehearsed a lot. Um, they worked with their music so much. And I think Phil has said also that you don't play the way we play without having a theoretical knowledge of what, what music is and how to form music. So they discussed it a lot. They listened to their own music and they learned how to do things and how to communicate musically. And it's interesting also that we tend to think of improvisation as free, as something that you voluntarily enter. But you can also look at improvisation Station, I think, as a sort of a coercion. And the, Jerry Garcia often talked about that, that we don't have a choice. We, we have to improvise because we, that's just what we are. So it has had to do with sort of the band's form of existence itself. They were improvising. And I think that has a lot to do with the era, the time, what happened in, in jazz music during the 60s, for instance. They often return to the importance of listening to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. I mean, Miles Davis opened for The Grateful Dead uh, several nights at the film, or it's insane, actually, as Phil Esch suggested in his memoir. They sh- should have been the other way around. The Grateful Dead opened for Miles Davis, of course. But this, that improvisation sort of was in the air. It was for part of what was going on in the 60s in an interesting way, I think. 
And 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 one of course the the one of the great tensions in the band is the fact that in addition to these improvisatory openings, you know, whether some of them more jammy, let's, let's say they're staying on one chord or two chords and they're kind of playing around the tune, sort of deconstructing it. And then sometimes, as you say, it's particularly in the early 70s, but, you know, off, quite often later on, you know, really unexpected music, really strange sounds, sometimes clashing, sometimes dissonant, sometimes often very unpredictable. Um, and at the same time, and this is what sets them apart from a lot of other kinds of improvised music. In fact, I can't think of anything that's similar to them in this regard. Uh, they have this sort of this rhetoric of tradition, uh, playing these old popular tunes, you know, and and playing them often over and over again, almost identically. So in the same show where you'd have a, a you know a nice half an hour playing in the band, you're going to get, as you describe in the book many times. You know, one of the 613 recorded renditions of me and my uncle, which, you know, you probably don't you're probably not that interested in when it's come down the pike because it pretty much sounds the same. I mean, it's, they don't change it that that much. And so there's this weird balance between this with this one zone of, of whether you want to think about it as freedom or or an interesting kind of coercion or a kind of necessity. Um, but you have this openness of the of the improvisation. But there's also this profound relationship, not just with actual traditions, cowboy tunes, you know, uh, uh, folks, folk songs, but just even to the idea of tradition, the, the kind of way in which even their original material, particularly stuff from Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, that that material itself feels traditional, feels like some evocation of a of an earlier time. So there's this very strange relationship that I don't really think of as in in, in anybody in any other band out there at all. And and that seems to be also what partly makes their improv so interesting is that there's this relationship with with tradition at the same time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting to think of all these versions of the same songs and how they how many times they perform them. It might have to do, I think, sometimes with it. I mean, there's this desire for the perfect ultimate version of, say, me and my uncle or something. But they, of course, never find it. They have to try it again and again. And it has something to do, I might suggest, with, with craftsmanship you know, how to sort of make the best out of every piece that forms a band. And it was so important within also this countercultural culture that they, they were sort of part of, that to make it yourself. So you had to sort of try to form it the way you wanted it. And to do it from scratch and build it that way. So it had to do something with, like a, a carpenter wants to make his object, his, the house he's building or something, as good as possible. And you want to do that with all these songs also. And that, of course, uh, rooted in, in tradition. And uh, I try to look upon it a little in my book on how the relationship, the band's relationship, and especially Garcia's perhaps, to, to bluegrass which is sort of also a community-building kind of music. Yeah, and also, and also a very modern kind of uh, traditional music. That's one of the things that's so fascinating about, about bluegrass. But I want to pick up on something you mentioned, this, 
this idea of craftsmanship of 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 uh, the sort of DIY aspect of the band that 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 helped you know establish or 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 produce their originality. And it again ties in with one of the things that I, I've been thinking about in a broader sense about about the West Coast, about the counterculture, is that is that there's a a, a very important vein of the counterculture that is uh, uh, pragmatic. That it's not just about tearing down the walls and creating a revolution and getting as high as you possibly can, but it's about reworking existing materials in new ways. Um, some people talk about countercultural bricolures, people who are putting together even derelict systems in new ways. And in, indeed, part of the whole ethos of the whole earth catalog, uh, you know, of, of Stuart Brand's sort of ideology and a lot of the ecological and communal uh, aspects of the times really had to do with this kind of creative pragmatism where you, you don't, you don't, you turn, you take things from the past you take old technologies, but you find new ways to use them, and that 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 construction is part of how you construct an, a, a new society or a new consciousness or a new way for human beings uh, to be together. And so it's a, it's remarkable when you look at at the '60s and early '70s, the amount of of this kind of creative craftsmanship collectively that's happening, and it kind of goes away in a lot of ways, or it becomes other things. It becomes you know Google and Apple in its own way. But it also becomes the Grateful Dead. There's a way in which they they keep a space for a kind of collective making that that has this improvisatory element, not just in terms of going off and playing tunes, but but of how to put things together in new ways. Yeah, and this pragmatism, as you suggest, has a lot to do with technology to find ways of doing things. And we should remember, I think, that improvisation in popular music or in music in general partly was made possible by a technological innovation, namely the, the long playing album. With the LP, you could have 23 minutes of Dark Star on one side of a record. So the, the culture industry, in a way, welcomed this kind of, of music then. And also another aspect, which is about technology, is, is the band's interest in, in sounding as good as possible and how much they invested in the PA system and the wall of sound in the early 70s and how they always been sort of in the, on the technological forefront, trying to make uh, everyone hear as well as possible. And this is also, of course, what makes improvisation possible, that you could hear yourself on stage. But when you play for 50,000 people in a sports arena, it gets a little more difficult to hear what you're doing, actually. You can't listen to each other the same way that you can do in an arena for 5,000 people or something. But technology makes it's a really important aspect, I think, of what makes the Grateful Dead such an interesting band. Yeah, and, and it's, a, it's a paradox as well, because, of course, mostly, or at least for a lot of people, who are, for, for the people who are buying records, and not necessarily at the show, or even if they go to the show and then they buy a record, but the record is of a live show, that the idea of improvisation, of being free of, of something unexpected, of the spontaneous, of the unknown, is sort of paradoxically inscribed into something that's designed to be repeated over and over. So there's already this weird loop or a, 
trace within the Grateful Dead's ethos of improvisation where it's always already recorded. And, and you know, then, of course, the, with the tapers and the kind of encouragement essentially to record shows by by people to do it, you know, DIY recordings and that those recordings then get listened to over and over again. So, it, 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 again, it's this kind of complexity that you're you're so good at, at getting to in, in the book is where there's a tension between these maybe the idealization of improvisation as freedom and spontaneity and the unknown. But it's also always bound up with some kind of constraint or uh, inscription or some uh, feature of the culture industry, including including technology. Yeah, there's a dialectic at work here, I think. I mean. Improvised music is always situated. It's always sort of in this room at this time, and it is happening at this very moment. But then recordings, of course, unsituate music. It makes it possible to listen to them in your car or in your home, and you can stream music, etc., etc. So, so it has become something else then. And this is an interesting uh, problem, I think, for improvised music. Gary Garcia used to say that when we're done with it, they can have it, meaning that the audience could do whatever it wanted with the music when the musicians had, had finished it. But this, as you point to this, that improvised music becomes repeatable is strange in a way. One should really listen to improvised music on record only once and then throw away the record or something in order to keep it more situated then. But uh, there is also other forms of dialectic at work here, I think. I mean, improvisation is, we talked about tradition, and improvisation can be a form of remembrance that you sort of go back to, you pick up things from the past and, and use it. But it can also be a question of forgetting, to try to forget everything that you've learned in order to do something new. And this, there's that tension also in the Great for Dead's music, I think, that they sort of celebrate and, and memorializes the tradition that they come out of, but they also try to transgress it and to forget about it. Yeah, very much. One of the, th the words you use a lot when describing the effect of particularly the more improvised aspects of their music, uh, and I thought, I thought it was very insightful, was the word delay. That that part that you know improv as again improvisation can have different effects in different kinds of contexts, but definitely with the dead, there was the sense of like, not we're not going to go back to the song yet, we're not going to go back to the familiar riff yet, and even more sometimes we're not even going to let you know what we're playing on, and that's where you get to this like the the whole importance in the dead, which I always thought was really a really significant part was the sort of in-between songs where they're kind of diddling around a little bit, tuning up and kind of making noise. And it's like as a, a part of the game as an audience is to sit there and go, OK, what are they going to play? And you hear a chord and you go, oh, this might, this might become the time or whatever. And there's this sense that they were sort of playing with anticipation. There's a lot of playing with anticipation. And even Garcia's solo solo style, I mean, he's very he's a unique guitar style but i think one of the features of it, and it was this was illuminated by a guitarist friend of mine who didn't like jerry he did he thought he, he, he didn't enjoy his playing he said kind of he never really resolves what he's doing he never really lands and in a way it's true he, he kind of refuses he has his own kind of delay going even in the midst of his solos in addition to what the band's doing um so there's something in that delay that's both 
playful and, and even a little, you know, kind of combative. There's something in there where they're they're kind of teasing uh, the the audience. So, um, what you know, what what was important about that that sense of delay? You think like where did where did that come from? What what is that? What does that tell us about what the band was up to? Well, I think teasing is an important element, not only directed towards the audience, to us listening, but also to each other, that you sort of try an idea with the rest of the band. And then those players can sort of choose whether to respond and then everyone goes into the tune or something, or they can deny it to answer it. And then you have to move on. And there's the delay then that they refuse. It's a sort of refusal to get into the order, I think. Um, Which is a politics, too, because it's it's a refusal to get into what the culture industry, as you put it earlier, what they expected or wanted, what the normal routine was. You, you, you put out records, there's short songs that go on the radio, you go on tour, you re repeat the things that are on the radio, and then people feel they recognize it. And you know, so that, so that part of their this refusal was a was a gesture against a whole kind of order of cultural production, um, and that's a lot of what your book is about. You know, but before you, I actually want to read a section that that's that, that's exactly talking about this because I thought it was one of the most um, insightful and interesting about improvisation and the way in which it's refusing or resisting. Improvisation will never get there. It is always too late or too early. It will not take you home. Improvisation emits a promise of happiness, as does art in general, but that promise is always betrayed. Improvisation denies closure and instead destroys. But this destruction is not only musical in the sense of a transgression of the given parameters of a given song, it is destructive also in that it refuses to acknowledge such a basic assumption of Western music as even the song format. Improvisation is a critique of reification. So I, I, I bring that partly to get to some of these political issues. What do you mean about improvisation as a critique of reification in this sense? Well, you actually already said it yourself, I think, when you discussed Jerry Garcia's way of playing, that he sort of denies closure. And it's improvisation is a way of keeping things open while commodification is a way of closing things down so that they become marketable and sellable and you can take them home, etc. So improvisation sort of is a refusal to become objectified that way. But of course, the culture industry then produces uh, CDs that can have almost 80 minutes of music on them. So it is always a sort of changing climate, a changing tension between the, the artist's way of trying to keep control of their own work and the culture industry's desire to distribute it and make a profit out of it then. And this is, of course, constantly changing. It's not, we can't say that the Grateful Dead solved anything. There is no solution to find here. But they practiced something that is inspiring, I think, in this kind of, of refusal. Oh, very much so. Um, so I, I, so I want to get into a little bit more of the 
the the politics of it. So that's what's that was really the interesting twist in your in your story is that yeah, you could have a discussion of the Grateful Dead and improvisation, how it works musically, how it you know plays with audiences, how it plays plays with tradition. But you go farther and say, okay, well let's look at this politics, not just in terms of the the antagonistic relationship with the culture industry, which in some sense always wins in the end. But there's this kind of space of resistance or space of refusal. That's important. But there's a lot more to, to, to be said about the about the Grateful Dead and politics, despite the fact that on the surface, of course, they're the most apolitical 60s band you can imagine. They they actively, with some exceptions, you know, refuse to be parts of political campaigns. They don't uh, preach from the stage. Uh, they you know, they, you don't even really know what their opinions are about a lot of stuff. Um and yet there's a profound politics in the way that they practice, the way they practice with each other as a band, the way they uh, dealt with their own business, with the Grateful Dead family, with the, the relationships with people within the organization. And then, of course, the way they dealt with the audience and, and the, the unique relationship with, uh, with, with fans, with travelers, with people making their own T-shirts, you know, all the sort of stuff that comes out of it, particularly, you know, in the earlier part of the band. So... You know, when you when when you set out to ask answer this question, what are the politics of the Grateful Dead? Where did you start to look for? Where do you feel like is the the key places to to sort of unpack what kind of politics this you know avowedly anti political band actually had? Well, I think one starting point was a remark made by the band's official biographer, Dennis McNally, who has also published the best band history uh, of the band. And he says somewhere that the Grateful Dead is so intimately connected to the dislocations of the 60s. And he was then thinking of gender, race and class. So this these dislocations that set said something also about improvisation. Improvising is a way of dislocating the known, the the already known, and making it strange and making it new in a way. So there I found something. And of course, the Grateful Dead were stubbornly apolitical, but they performed a political function. And in order to understand that, I realized that we had to sort of try to look at what politics might be from a different angle and don't think of it as Democrats and Republicans as blue or red states. It's not even about socialism and capitalism in the uh, in any basic sense. It's not about who's, who is president or not, etc. That is not politics in the Grateful Dead uh, community then. But they performed a political function in that they opened up a space where people could do something else and become something else, a space where we could sort of try to form ourselves. And I think a lot of popular culture fills that function in many ways. But the Grateful Dead established that sort of space much more wider, much more important than most other popular cultural phenomena does, actually. So there is the opening, I think, that they had, they created this space for us where we could form ourselves. And one of the ways you talk about that, I, that, that I think is very important, is the way in which they were aware of the traps of rock stardom. 
the, the, the traps of charisma, being a guru. And of course, those things kind of happened anyway. You know, when I was seeing the, when I first started seeing the band, there was already a whole kind of rhetoric around Jerry and the people who were on like the Jerry side of the stage and Jerry's a bodhisattva, he's a guru, you know, whatever. There was already that kind of guru stuff. But at the same time, the band went out of their way to, 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 to squash that. You know, they didn't want to wear flashy clothes. They didn't want to talk very much to the audience. They didn't want to uh, be too explicit even in, in interviews. So it's, it's like in order to make that unique political cultural space that you're talking about happen, they also had to do things kind of against the grain uh, as a band. Uh, to let that happen in, in terms of creating a relationship with uh, a particular kind of relationship with the audience. The band was really aware, I think, of the trappings of, of being rock stars and what that could imply. And Jerry Garcia talked in a, some interviews about the sort of fascism that the, the culture industry supports in the, the rock concert as sort of an authoritarian gesture you know, with the with the, it's a sort of authoritarian seduction of the audience, and you play as loud as possible, etc., in, in order to be in control and in power. And he was so much against that, and against the gestures and rhetorics and costumes, etc., of, of rock stardom. Then, and they understood then early on that if they wanted to be something else, they needed to work on it. They needed to organize themselves. As you say, they, they took care of the Grateful Dead family and the whole organization in, in interesting ways. And since the band has donated its archive uh, to the University of California at Santa Cruz, you can go there and really look at the business papers and the protocols from band meetings, etc., et and see how the band really tries to defend itself against the, the uh, forces that wants it to become something else that it didn't want to be. Um, so self-organization to me is sort of the key issue in order to understand what political might mean when it comes to the Grateful Dead. I, I, to I totally agree. You know, and, and, but one, one term that didn't come up in your, in your uh, book, maybe it's there somewhere, but I don't think you, you certainly didn't ex uh, discuss it extensively, um, is the word libertarian. Because and I'll, and I'll give you just a little brief riff here. Is that one of the, I think the, the, uh, one of the ways I think we get the 60s wrong is that there's sort of the standard story where there were the new left activists, you know, the Berkeley rabble rousers and the radicals on the one hand. And on the other hand, you had the hate street hippies who were interested in new consciousness and in living a new lifestyle and in and saying and not in not fighting against the powers that be, but in creating their own society. And usually that's seen as apolitical. Kind of the way the Grateful Dead is seen as apolitical. But I also, for me, it's always been like, well, you know, we can actually understand this partly in terms of a kind of maybe not very theorized, but a certain kind of anarchism or even a certain kind of libertarianism. And of course, John Perry Barlow, who wrote a lot of the lyrics for the Bob Weir tunes, uh, was himself, you know, not only a Republican, which is sort of coming from Wyoming, doesn't necessarily mean that much, but was also very much of a libertarian. And I, 
my way of reading that partly, I mean, I would never put them in the camp of the libertarian, but I think you can understand part of this deeper uh, California current of self-organization, a certain kind of autonomy, a certain kind of anarchism, a certain kind of DIY that, that has to do with the idea that regardless of how the world is, that some of the way to be political is to organize yourself, to do it yourself, to make it to make it work for you and your community, uh, which you know has some negative sides as well. But but to what extent do you think that we could we can see the band both in its positive and I think in some ways uh, negative sides um, as uh, you know actually kind of principled in their we can call it anarchism we can call it libertarianism. Yeah, well, I, you're right in that I don't go into the question of libertarianism. I think it's so American. I mean, I'm a Swede. I have difficulties to get into what what does libertarianism really mean here. But I think that might be one of the sort of root threads for this culture that is the libertarian tradition. That uh, and But you can also look at the band's way of organizing itself and see that it really contradicts libertarianism, I think. I mean, for instance, they were so careful to, to, to make sure that every employee had a health insurance. Is that libertarianism or is it something else there? So it is, once again, this complexity of things here that is so interesting. Yeah, the, the quote that I that that you have, I can't remember, I think Joel Sylvan might have said it was the the anarchist pirate ship. And and that for me, that does it, is that there's an anarchism in terms of not wanting to tell anybody what's going on. You know, they don't want to tell the audience how to behave. They don't want to tell each other how to behave. In fact, I think that's actually one of the key ways into their own politics, if you will, is the way in which the band did not really discipline itself very much or discipline others in the band. So that like, uh, you know, with, with the exception of the Mickey Hart early 70s story, that's a kind of different different domain. But I think it's instructive that, you know, Bob Weir was Jerry's heroin bag man until the end. So Bob Weir was not willing to go, hey, Jerry, I think this stuff's going to kill you. Maybe you should stop. Or maybe he would say that, but no one's going to make a move. Because on some basic level, people are allowed their own way through the world. You, you, don't, you don't try to control other people. But at the same time, like you say, it's a pirate ship. It's not just those guys, but it's their, the, 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 the family, the larger organization, the roadies, whatever. So it's, it's not individualism, which is why libertarian doesn't quite work. Uh, it's like a social anarchism. It's a, it's a very strange... Uh, but but strangely powerful uh, uh, kind of mix, uh, and it's it's hard to generalize from it. And and I guess one of the questions is, if it is if it was an anarchist pirate ship, was the audience on the ship, <laughs> or was the audience just watching the ship go by and, and and dancing in its wake? Well, that's a good question, and it has to do, of course, with the division of labor. In the early days, the band really wanted the audience to be part of the band in, in a sense, that there should be no dividing line really between band music and audience. But of course that is impossible to uphold when you grow more popular. And I mean, also a pirate ship has to be navigated in some sense. You have to know where you're going, etc. So 
the band members didn't want to police each other, but they felt a sort of difficult but still important urge to police the audience. I mean, when they became so popular, they also had an audience that didn't know how to be a deadhead audience, that didn't have the ethos of, of the sort of community that the band belonged to and came out of. So they started to police the, the audience and they didn't want to do it, but they had to do it. I mean, people were gate crashing into concerts and there were lots of troubles on about security uh, when they became so immensely popular in the late 80s. So they... Once again, there is this tension between the anarchist ethos that the band tried to uphold. And Filesh says in his memoirs, I think it is, that The Great Red Dead really was the last surviving uh, aspect of the 60s, but that it was so important that at least something survived. And that was The Great Red Dead culture then. So there's a tension between that and this popularity and the, the strain that that put on things then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you do uh, talk a, a fair amount in the in the book about what happens after they get popular in the late '80s, and and that's when you can kind of see the the decline of a, of of a lot of what made them unique uh, in relationship to crowds and the musical form improvisation. They don't take off as much, so that in a way tells us a you know somewhat familiar story about, you know, initial novelty and, and questioning and critical, uh, a, a critical and creative approach to the world that then gradually becomes kind of commodified and, and absorbed. Uh, but that's not entirely the story. So even though my, my own, you know, I, I kind of stopped seeing the band in the in the 90s and, and I'd occasionally go just for the for the parking lot scene, really, because uh, I found the, the music. I didn't like the MIDI stuff so much. I didn't really like the big the big stadium so much. Um, but there's something there, too. Uh, what what for you is the most the interesting part of the the, the last, you know, five, six, seven years uh, of the band's life in the, in the early 90s in terms of the issues of improvisation and politics that you were talking about? Wh wh where do you see something really kind of that maybe doesn't get as much attention or that you think is really, really interesting with that late, late period? Well, I can't really say that I think that they were that good at improvisation in, in these years. Occasionally, they could take off. I mentioned in my book a, a show with a saxophonist, David Murray, that is really fantastic, but he triggers the band to go somewhere, some new places. What it strikes me as so typical of, of the late era Grateful Dead is, of course, the growing sense of melancholy there. Um, I mean, Yuri Garcia could hardly play the guitar sometimes. His fingers were so stiff and ached so much that he could hardly hold his instrument sometimes, but he could sing. And uh, the song becomes much more important as such, I think. And also, you mentioned that you didn't like the MIDI stuff, and I don't either. I like the band to sound more natural in a way. Uh, so they sort of hid behind the sounds that they could make. The media became sort of a disguise, I think. And the band really wasn't there. Yeah, one of the things you talk about is, and I, I had heard that before, and I know that it might actually be a little folkloric, but but I guess it's, report, it's reported in multiple sources, how they, had, they each had individual ear monitors 
and uh, to hear better. Uh, and that that almost everyone in the in the band requested that their the the loudest source be in their in their ears would be their own instruments. So in some sense, they were literally not listening to each other uh, as much as they as they once were. Yeah, and that story comes from Dennis McNally, and he. Oh. Oh, I think so. Yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, it's funny. And then the, the melancholy thing is very interesting. I mean, again, I remember some of the later shows uh, when you'd come to a Jerry ballad. And that, that really was kind of the center in a lot, a lot of ways, because it was where there was the most sort of, I don't know, like the, the, a kind of emotional intensity, like something that you might have earlier felt in the midst of a jam. Uh, with some strange, you know, turn in the music or some intensification of the rhythm or whatever it was, that magic takeoff vibe uh, would often almost more be concentrated in, in him uh, as a figure, which is kind of ironic given that he was never a great singer, although, you know, good singer. Um, and it certainly wasn't very good <laughs> towards the end, but that there was something there about, you know, Jerry as this this particular kind of wounded soul that uh, that, that worked um, in that in that late environment, we talked about improvisation as a form of delay, and they sort of excelled in that in the the seventies. They could sort of tease us, and they could hint at where they were going, but they didn't go there. So there was this sense of delay that sort of injected attention into the music. But in the nineties, the music feels often rushed. There is no delay in it. They, they need to go through a set list, it almost feels like, you know, and the shows are so much shorter, they're down to two hours. And that's because of contractual agreements with the promoters and with the union. So they were really had to rush through sometimes. And if there were technical problems, they got really rushed, I think. So they lose something there. They're still a good band. And of course, also, that means that they became more of and more of a more conventional rock band, in a sense, which they had tried to avoid becoming for so long. For some reason, I'm thinking of a conversation I had with a, a younger person I know who's a big fish head. You know, so, of course, there's all these jam bands that kind of come after the dead and sort of emulate certain aspects of either their music or their scene and, and kind of create these um pods, you know, spawns and moving in different directions that have a sort of familiar vibe if you were a deadhead. But for one thing, I mean, you know, there's a lot of differences, of course, with these bands. But the one thing, particularly with Fish, which in a way was the most musically ambitious, the most interesting players, um, you know, both kind of their in terms of their mythology and references in their songs and also of, of their playing, you know, very, very admirable players, not a band I, I particularly enjoy. But when I was trying to explain to my friend what was different, he was defending fish, is that the dead could be, especially back in the day, scary. Something was risked. Something was unnerving in the dislocation. And they weren't going to necessarily grab you, like that whole idea of without a net. I mean, that can refer to like improvising when you're not really sure where you are and you're doing it collectively in front of, you know, 50,000 people, that's, that's definitely living without a net, but there's also almost a, a psychological, it's not the right word cause that's too individual, but there was some sense that even as an audience member, you know, and possibly someone who was, you know, high on drugs, but it, that doesn't really need to be there either, that there was something risked 
and that you could get lost in there. Uh, and that they seem to retain a proximity to to the dark, to something frightening, something uncontrollable in America, in themselves, in drugs, uh, wasn't explicit. And, in, and even the lack of explicitness was part of what was scary. That nobody else in that, even close in that jam band, nobody even understands. They can't even, they can't even try to get there. And your book, you, you, you focus on that a couple of times. You talk about the the kind of agony that's in there or the, or the, the questioning or, or, or the fearfulness uh, that can be in the midst of these jams, particularly in something like Dark Star you talk about or, or uh, whatever. But that seemed to me also a really key element that you don't, I can't really think of it an analog in terms of a, a, a group that sort of musically stages this sort of uh, fearful questioning in the midst of what can be such celebratory joyous music. Yeah, some people tend to think of the Grateful Dead in, in as sort of this hippy dippy summer of love, flower in your hair kind of nonsense. It has really nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. And you're right, that there, there was a is a, such a big strong darkness to the music. There is danger there. And they are putting something at stakes then. There's a, they take risks then. And I think that's such an important aspect of the band's ethos, I think. And it is, as I try to suggest in my book, that the world is at is, is in the work of art. So they have a vision of what it is the world is, what it is means to be in the world that they sort of express musically. And it's strange that so few bands does it today. I mean, the world is a darker place today than it was in the 60s, I think. Um, but I tried to compare The Grateful Dead to, which might surprise a little, to, the, to Sonic Youth, which was a New York band that came out of the punk scene. But they performed also a political function and they were the center of a cultural environment that that is so uh, similar to what the Grateful Dead did. They The aesthetics may, might differ, even though one of the players of, this, of Sonic Youth is really a declared uh, deadhead and, and performs on, on this great five CD album. Day of the Dead, that is a sort of run-through of the Grateful Dead's music by other artists. But there is a similarity there, and they have the darkness also. I mean, they formulate the chaotic experience of trying to live a daily life in, in the world as it is today. And it's, yeah, I thought, I thought that was a very uh, very apt uh, analogy, and even just to be thinking about how they 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 also brought in, in improvisation and you know avant-garde gestures into a more popular form in a way that would that that didn't feel um, smart alecky or latched on or artificially juxtaposed. I mean, it was you know in the very language of of punk rock that sort of, you know, was allowed to sort of flower into these sort of atonal walls of sound and uh, the sort of uh, uh, flirtation with noise. And it's funny, I've been listening to a lot of shows recently, reading your book and going to dead shows and going back to the, to the great early seventies period. I'm, I'm that's that 72, 74 period for me is, is the, is the primo zone. Um, but listening to particularly Phil, during some of these uh, jams where he starts to play chords on the bass. And I'm like, 
That sounds like Sonic Youth. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what interests me so much, also, and I think I don't comment upon it that much in my book, but someone should do it, is that the Grateful Dead had such an intense relationship to silence. They could take their music towards silence constantly, and that is such an odd feature in a rock band. I mean, who does that today? Who, who is sort of aiming for moments of silence right inside the music? And to me, that is such a fascinating quality of the Grateful Dead from the 70s, that is. Yeah. And what, what do you think is up with that? I mean, that like, I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's like another gesture that's that's unexpected and it creates sort of. But it's, it seems like there's more there to that. I mean, something that I'm, I'm, I'm almost tempted to you know use more uh, cosmic or mystical language, not that they were interested in, in fomenting any kind of obvious uh, uh, spiritual schmaltz. Uh, but there is a, a sort of psychedelic spirituality going through the music and the and the lyrics, a sort of sense of the evanescent, of the, the, the deeper question, the cosmic giggle. There's something going on there. And sometimes I hear something like that going on in that silence, in that willingness to not, you know, step in and fill the gap and give the audience something that they can hold on to. Um, what do you think is going on there? I think it is... To me, I sort of refer to eroticism. It, it's erotic moments. They are so intimate, and you're so close to something, but you cannot be that other thing, but you're close to it. And that is, to me, an erotic sensation that they actually... I mean, The Grateful Dead is not about sex, as so much rock music is. They were pretty bad at that, actually. Uh, but eroticism is something else. It's a sensuality in the music there that brings them towards silence, I think. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. It's a, it's another kind of, uh, you know, rolling in the rushes. <laughs> um, so I, I, are you going to continue to work on the dead or is this kind of your dead book? This is my dead book and I'm leaving that field now. <laughs> and just out of here, we only have like a minute here, but just to get a sense, we didn't talk about any of the other things you're interested in. What would what would your next book, do you have a plan for the next project or what you're working on right now? Yeah, yeah I'm writing a book now on Swedish author and, and playwright August Strindberg. I've done that a couple of times before and that's I'm back to it. And to me, there is a sort of connection between my literary interests which are sort of not the mainstream ones. I'm not interested in those sort of normal writers. I'm interested in those that take things to the extremes. So there's a sort of connection between my interest in improvisation and in literature. Once August Strindberg was interested, he lived, I mean, 100 years ago. And he was interested in improvisation as a literary feature then. So there is a relationship there. But... Um, I should want to add also that this book is the first in, in a series of studies in The Grateful Dead, and there will be forthcoming other books then written other people, and I'm really looking forward to those volumes. Yeah, me too. Well, Ulf, thanks so much for joining us on Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. It was great fun talking to you, Eric. All right, good luck. And to all you out there listening, keep your minds open. <laughs>